Hi, I'm Ryan McClure. And I'm Justin Zyduck. And welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a closer look at some notoriously and allegedly terrible comics and comic runs. So we're coming back at you after a fairly long hiatus, uh, our first episode of the new year, and hope you all had a good holiday. Mm-hmm. And so we are belatedly ringing in the new year with the Malibu Ultraverse title Mantra number one through five. Uh, if you have no idea what that is, uh, <laughs> don't worry, we'll get you caught up. Uh, so the series was written by Mike W. Barr, penciled by Terry Dodson, with guest pencils by Rob Phipps in episode or in issue four. Inked by Alve, with guest co-inks by Barb Kalberg in number four, and guest inks by Jason Rodriguez in number five, and was published in 1993 by Malibu Comics Ultraverse Imprint. So uh, we're going to be starting with the first appearances of Mantra, so you'll be getting in on the ground floor and won't need to know any backstory or history um, on that character. Uh, but here's the basic premise, is that there's a war been going on since the 5th century between a heroic eternal warrior and his evil wizard nemesis. The heroic warrior possesses various bodies throughout the centuries, and when a body is killed, his spirit possesses a new one to continue the fight. The twist is, when he's killed in the 1990s, for the first time he possesses the body of a woman. Now this is, I think we can agree... A very clear, high concept. This is like a Mark Millar-level elevator pitch. You could imagine Netflix buying this, or whatever. Uh, but it's also the sort of thing... And it's a, it's the sort of thing that, in the right creator's hands, could have an interesting take on issues of gender, and identity, and social pressures, and preconceptions. But it's also the sort of thing that could go way off the rails into offensive territory, right? Like, this is... Uh, the potentially problematic minefield that we are interested in checking out today but we have agreed to go into this with a fairly open mind mm-hmm. and this was uh this was 1993's kind of handling of, of gender issues we're, yeah. we're looking at so it's uh it's good to keep that in mind right it's well-meaning within the 1993 understanding of well-meaning <laughs> um but uh some background that we will give you is on the ultraverse In the 1990s, everybody was launching superhero universes. Malibu Comics, which was founded as an independent publisher in 1986, was no different. They had actually published the initial run of Image Comics to uh, to share finances and distribution resources, but the Image books were soon making so much money that they were able to break out on their own. This left a universe-sized hole at Malibu that they planned to fill with a new concept called the Ultraverse. Uh, Whereas the Marvel and DC universes had sort of organically but messily built up over time without a pre-planned structure, and whereas the Image universe was separate creators working on mostly unrelated books that occasionally crossed over or just sort of mentioned each other, the plan was for the Ultraverse to be a cohesive and coherently designed universe before they even published a single issue. And whereas Image was largely driven by hot new artists, the Ultraverse would be driven by veteran writers like Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, James Hudnall, uh, Len Straczewski, and Mike W. Barr, who, as we've said, is the creator and writer on Mantra. Uh, Mike W. Barr had created the detective series Maze Agency for Comico, but is probably best known for his work at DC, including his collaboration with Brian Bolland on the series Camelot 3000. 
He created Batman and the Outsiders, uh, wrote Batman Year Two, the sequel to Frank Miller's Year One, and collaborated with Alan, uh, artist Alan Davis on a run of Detective Comics that harkened back to the adventurous charm of the Golden and Silver Ages, right in the middle of uh, Batman's kind of grim and gritty 80s post-Miller phase. Um, even most notoriously, Barr wrote a graphic novel where Batman fathers a child with Talia, the daughter of his nemesis Ra's al Ghul, which ended up being the inspiration, if not the direct creation, of Batman's now canonical biological son, Damian Wayne, introduced in the mid-2000s by Grant Morrison. So, uh, Barr and the others met and came up with a sort of high-level series bible for the Ultraverse. Uh, it's history, where the Ultras, as its heroes were called, came from and how their powers worked, all that kind of background material. Um, they ended up loosely collaborating with legendary science fiction author uh, Larry Niven on some of the world building. Um, some other Ultraverse books you might have heard of are Prime, which was sort of a 90s version of the um, Shazam Captain Marvel concept. Ultraforce, The Strangers, Hard Case, um, The Nightman. You might remember The Nightman from a uh, syndicated live action show from the late 90s. Um, this is the environment in which Mantra, the series we're talking about today, was released. So, um, before we begin, a quick word about the penciler on the series, Terry Dodson, who, since Mantra, has become a legitimate superstar artist and probably doesn't need an introduction, but we'll get one anyway. Uh, you'll know him from the first Harley Quinn series in 2000, the Spider-Man and Black Cat book he worked on with Kevin Smith, the Marvel Knight Spider-Man book he worked on with Mark Millar, a run on Wonder Woman with various artists, and recently a Princess Leia series with Mark Wade, as well as a whole boatload of covers from various publishers. Um, he and Mark Millar also did the controversial series Trouble at Marvel, which I think we'll probably have to cover at some point. Um, but for now, let's get into the Ultraverse and Mantra. So, issue one. Uh, we open on Lucas, our main character. Uh, currently a man holed up in a dingy hotel with a bunch of weapons. A lawyer comes to the door of the hotel with some forms for him to sign. We don't know what the forms are, but they have something to do with the main character and his boss. Then we see Lucas's wife and child show up at the door. His wife pleads with him, asking him how could he leave her and his son. And so the narration reveals... The, the protagonist's inner uh, monologue, and we learn that he has no connection to them because he barely knows him and he's had so many wives over the years, which is our clue that this guy is going to keep jumping bodies. And, and this kind of establishes what I think is one of the potentially interesting themes of the comic, which is you've got this character who is fighting this centuries-old war and has to constantly switch bodies so he never really develops any emotional ties with anybody uh, because he's going to just potentially die right away or has to just abandon them and, and start fighting the war. Uh, so you can kind of see them laying the groundwork for a, a character arc where he starts to become more attached to somebody and maybe changes in that way. Uh, so that kind of is a nice hook at the start. And I also say that like it's that first page is really pretty hooky in that um, this lawyer shows up and the guy Lucas knows more about him than he should. 
and he's using his wrong hand to try to sign the papers because he's not used to being uh, left-handed or whatever. So I think there's like an interesting, mm-hmm. um, very intriguing setup right off the bat, and you're sort of drawn into this mystery about like what's if you don't know the concept already, it's like what's wrong with this dude. So this is my yeah, yeah this is my coming with an open mind and a, a positive perspective. It is a good opener to a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, so Luke has his leader known as the Archimage Astral projects himself to appear before Lucas and tell him that his enemy Boneyard has quote made his move and Archimage tells Lucas to get ready to confront Boneyard so then Lucas meets up with three of his fellow warriors wearing padded armor who are also planning to fight Boneyard and from their dialogue, it's it's clear that they've also recently jumped to new bodies because they don't initially recognize one another. So meanwhile, inside a magic shop, uh, we're introduced to one of Boneyard's henchmen, Notch. So Notch is dressed like he's from Asgard or Masters of the Universe, but with kind of a 90s twist. Uh, he's got a big flowing cape, a cod piece with a skull emblazoned on it. It's got the gambit style head sock thingy and a ponytail. Yeah, and he is apparently called Notch because um, he seems to be marking notches into his staff or whatever it is that he's carrying uh, every time he kills somebody, which is like a good enough gimmick. It's like a Batman kind of gimmick. I think Mr. Zaz is like that or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, the staff, they the artists draw the staff like he has like nine notches in it or so, which is like. Nine mm-hmm. kills over 1,500 years is not that impressive. I mean, not that I've killed a bunch of people or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like, you know, unless he's, like, starting a new staff every couple of hundred years or so, I feel like if you're called Notch for every time that you kill people and you have, like, nine, you're kind of letting yeah. kind of letting everybody down mm-hmm. in your eternal war. Yeah, you have to wonder if he rose up the ranks through Boneyard's <laughs> henchmen because he has, like, connections or... His boneyard's nephew, or something like that. Yeah. It's like it's like if I if I said I, if I had a chicken salad sandwich nine times over the past fifteen hundred years, <laughs> you wouldn't call me like Mister Chicken Salad Sandwich. You'd be like, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if, if I, you're always talking about it. Yeah, if like I really liked it, I was like, oh, it was so good mm-hmm. back in the eighteenth century. I think it just shows us he's a master of branding. Right. <laughs> it's true. Everybody uh, does call him Notch, despite possibly having not a great reason to, to maybe maybe it's a new gimmick mm-hmm. let's start yeah, counting was... in 1990 <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey guys i'm really 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 want to sell them on this idea <laughs> can everybody start calling me notch that would be that would be, be cool that'd be really cool uh but anyway he's threatening the proprietor of the magic shop a guy named strauss in order to find out the location of a magical mask, which one of Notch's henchmen locates. So Notch is about to kill the proprietor when our heroes burst in, guns ablazing. And, like, the door literally explodes. Like, there's there's a way to draw a door, like you're kicking the door down, and it kind of breaks or whatever, but, like, this is, like, mm-hmm. shrapnel wood. Like, they did something to this door, or it's just not mm-hmm. being drawn very, very well at this point. Yeah, yeah, so there's maybe some uh, gratuitous explosion, and we get our 
uh, heroes bursting in. And so there's kind of an interesting contrast in that they use modern weapons like firearms to fight Notch. And Notch and his crew are relying on sorcery. During the battle, Strauss escapes with a magical mask, while our main character, Lucas, gets stabbed through the chest and killed. The rest of his team escapes. Notch and his crew say they realize they need help, so they call up a mercenary with a huge 90s-style gun. And so we get introduced to this mercenary. Uh, he's in, He's basically inside what looks like an apartment or something, and he's shooting at a target that's positioned directly behind a vase on a table. Uh, so he like shoots around the vase to hit the target and then pulls out the single flower inside for a big old sniff. So it's just kind of a weird place to have a uh, targeting range. But yeah, and and if you uh, are familiar with '90s comics, that was the time where every other title had to have a cable knockoff character. So he's got a huge gun, lots of pouches, pads, and belt straps, and a weird and kind of weird stuff around one eye. Yeah, it's like a triangular kind of war paint thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's worth mentioning that this gun, which I will say in comparison to like some of the uh, overdrawn 90s weaponry that we saw like in Image Comics, mm-hmm. it's a big gun, but it's a reasonably realistic, like you could lift that. A human being could lift that gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that this gun has on sort of near the near the front of it a nuclear radiation symbol. So I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a nuclear gun or if uh, this guy is just sort of a tool who puts a lot of stickers on his guns. Like this is my atomic gun. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he's got the you know the the coexist sticker on the back. He's got the 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 minivan kids decals on the back. Yeah, I could see him rocking this. <laughs> Maybe like, uh, like, like, a, like a Dave Matthews band sticker somewhere on there. That would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this guy. Uh, or, so we cut away from our new mercenary friend to a nice couple named Marla and Carl arriving at a woman named Eden's house. Marla, speaking to Carl, says, We went out on our first date with her. Remember, Carl? It's nice that we're going out with her on our first date since we got back together. So Carl's either in a memento situation where he has trouble retaining new memories <laughs> or this is some clumsy exposition uh, and it seems to be the latter. Yes. Uh, so then we cut to Eden who is a dark-haired beauty and her boyfriend Brent and they're planning on going on a double date with Carl and Marla. So they're getting ready to, ready to leave Eden hugs her children. Uh, her children are Evie and Gus. So this, these are a lot of names to throw at you. Really, the most important ones right now are Eden, and uh, that's pretty pretty much the the main one right now. Yeah, the the the, the kids are just sort of the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all you need. Uh, so meanwhile, we see Lucas's soul or spirit or whatever going through this mystical tunnel where he can see all the bodies he's previously inhabited. And he winds up getting reincarnated in Carl. Then, Lucas as Carl goes up to Marla and Eden and is like, Sorry, gotta go. Eden yells at him for ditching Marla after she just reconciled with him. But he speeds off in their car. 
Luke has drives to nearby Los Angeles to meet up with his fellow warriors uh, from before, some of them at least. So it turns out there are only 12 of them left, and they're still waiting for orders from Archimage. Archimage teleports in, maybe astral projects, it's not 100% clear, um, and tells them the battle against Boneyard isn't going so great because apparently one of their uh, comrades has betrayed them. At this moment, Boneyard appears to them. Uh, Boneyard kind of looks like, if you're familiar with the Marvel characters, Deathlock and Mr. Sinister. They're like a He's like a cross between those two, yeah. cyborg-style eye, big red cape, dark blue body, random horizontal bands. Yeah. Although you mentioned uh, Boneyard's appearance, but I think we, I think attention must be paid to Archimage, who is wearing some sort of a onesie with bare legs. Like he is meant to be sort of a. I mean, he's got some leg muscles. He's they're, they're well developed, but he is like a a slender, older gentleman. Um, but yeah, he's got sort of this, like, the fabric is sort of tucked down under his belt and, like, going around. Mm-hmm. It's not what I would call a dignified look. Yeah, there are <laughs> definitely some interesting costume choices throughout this series. There are definitely some choices. <laughs> uh, so Boneyard says he knows Archimage's word of power, which apparently is Archimage's true name. And saying it makes Archimage disappear and then reappear in Boneyard's clutches as a tiny shrunken down version of himself Uh, I guess this is supposed to be like I don't know metaphorical or like uh, what's happening in in another dimension Uh, I don't know if he really shrunk him down physically (laughs) or or what Um, then Boneyard's henchmen show up to attack Lucas and friends and they fight uh Lucas starts to think that maybe because Archimage is gone, if he dies, he's not going to be resurrected. Uh, so if Lucas dies, he's not going to be rec- resurrected since it's Archimage who has the power to make that happen. Uh, the tide turns when the cable-style mercenary we saw earlier, who, because it's the 90s, is named Warstrike, at P- he shows up on the scene. Uh, he strike he sneaks up on Lucas and war strikes him with his sword, uh, killing him in the process. So to his surprise, Lucas gets reincarnated again, this time in the body of Eden, uh, which is revealed to us in a verging on gratuitous splash page where Lucas is bare ass naked in bed, literally kind of covering. Uh, their breasts with a hand and and some shadows are strategically placed. Yeah, it's it's very much sort of a uh, a Betty Page kind of like pinup shot. Yeah, it's not natural. It's looking no. at all. <laughs> no, not, not not none of this is is going to be natural looking. So then Eden is in bed. Uh, uh, we decided on the pronoun they uh, for for Eden and mantra going forward it's the least confusing maybe yeah yeah so um we'll we'll try to stick with that and be as consistent as possible so brent's their boyfriend brent is worried about them and goes to the back uh to the bathroom where eden has run off to to check on them 
and we get uh, the first of several gay panic style moments over the course of these issues. Eden says, I guess I was just being a silly girl, honey. You never know. Or, you know, we've never done it in here. And Brent responds, you know, we have to which uh, Eden replies. That was the last thing I wanted to know. Um, and also the other thing about this is uh, it's we're getting this character Lucas's reactions to the situation. And I don't think we should identify that character's opinions of the situation with the author. Um, So I think we can kind of read Lucas's macho and kind of sexist attitudes coming up as that character's viewpoints um, rather than, than trying to, assign it to the author uh what any feelings about that or yeah i mean i I feel like it's deliberately like this is the first time i mean this guy has been a warrior commando dude for 1500 years and he's used to you know he's they keep bringing up like oh he likes whiskey and he's you know a macho dude Mm -hmm. this is the first time that he's been in the body of a woman so there's like you know i guess it's meant to be understandable but yeah i mean i I think it's it's definitely like this is this character is having trouble adjusting which like you know to some degree like fair i guess i don't know i don't know i I don't know how used used to this you get after 1500 years but it seems surprising this is the first time it's come up but i guess that is actually a a plot point later on so yep um so eden looks in the mirror and reflects on their new body and says, this is all wrong. The rhythm, the movement, the center of gravity, and breasts. What do women do with them? They're always so out there. So this kind of seems like it might be a commentary on how female characters, including uh, the female presenting mantra, are drawn. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it is definitely like uh, this character is drawn as like the the 90s, you know, babe kind of archetype. Mm-hmm. And I guess and I didn't think it was sort of something you almost wanted to see more of is like it would be an adjustment after like fighting for again fifteen hundred years as a man to like have a different you know like the center of gravity I thought was like a interesting observation that like yeah that would be a different fighting style you would have to adopt um, mm-hmm. not that he has to fight yet in the the first thirty seconds or whatever but <laughs> yeah and then it just it kind of later it just becomes like oh this body is so weak compared to yeah a lot of a lot of talking about weak and feeble and stuff like that so yeah uh which is maybe less uh <laughs> sympathetic yeah um so eden takes some of brent's clothing puts it on <clears throat> uh so puts on brent's clothing and leaves the apartment we get some more kind of how do women do this style of commentary as Eden leaves uh, Brent's apartment in high heels. Um, and then uh, Eden goes to the scene of the battle that's just taken place. And to get information from the cops outside, uh, Eden uses their sex appeal. And they learn that there was one survivor of the battle who was taken to a hospital. And again, we get uh, when Eden flirts with the cops, the narration hints at the narrator feeling uncomfortable with the way the cops are looking at them. Um, 
So it's, again, kind of suggesting some awareness of this, uh, of the problem of objectification. Um, but it, on the other hand, we're getting, like, a lot of cheesecake-style shots as readers, so it's like... Yeah, it's 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 definitely a pulling of, like, I want to make you aware that, like, women are treated differently in society, but also... Let me show you a a mostly nude picture of this in sort of a mm-hmm. in sort of a pose. So it's complicated. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like a Zack Snyder's sucker punch kind of yeah, situation, right? Is um, yeah, yeah. All that and being like, actually, this is very feminist. I'm telling you. <laughs> um. So then, because it's comics, and if you spend any amount of time in an alleyway, you are immediately attacked by a criminal yes um she gets uh sorry they get attacked by a random man who is seemingly going to sexually assault them uh but the man is smoking a cigarette and somehow the flame from that cigarette spreads to his entire body and he burns up as eden runs away uh so eden goes to the hospital to see one of the archmage's henchmen katinia um i guess hench persons uh (laughs) Katinia is dying, and she tells Eden that uh, that Lucas is stuck in this body, and that it was part of Archimedes' plan. So for years, because Archimedes' henchmen have been trying to fight Boneyard with technology, now Archimedes wants Lucas to use sorcery to see if that works better. And so Archimedes specifically chose Eden because there's something kind of magically, uh, there's magical potential there. And so that's why Lucas has been reincarnated in this body. I do feel like after 1,500 years, this is something they could have coordinated ahead of time. Like we, yeah. we've been doing, we've been doing technology, and like there must must have been a lot. Like the first of all, the sorcery must have been much better in the year like 700 AD <laughs> than whatever technology they had. Now they got yeah. guns and stuff, and like things are just finally catching up. And now it's like you know what? Maybe we should have been doing magic for the last millennium and a half. And I'm not going to tell you about this ahead of time. We're just going to make this happen and you're going to roll with it. And we're cool with this, right? Yeah. And and plus like Archimage sticks Lucas in that Carl guy's body for like 10 seconds. <laughs> right. So it's, I, I'm like picturing Archimage's reincarnation power as like this claw machine type thing where he like <laughs> trying to get this this soul into this body and it's near Eden, but it's like, oh damn it, I got it into Carl. Right. It's okay, but I mean I was I was aiming for, I was aiming for Eden. Mm-hmm. Put another quarter um, in. Yeah. yeah. So Katinya gives Eden a little charm in the shape of a mask. Uh, Eden holds it up and gets transformed into their mantra persona. Uh, So the cloak and hoods, skimpy gold armor, and thigh-high boots that uh, are the are kind of their superhero costume is now has now appeared. Hmm. Uh, Eden comments on how skimpy and revealing the costume is, uh, which will again become kind of a recurring uh, comment going on. Yeah, sort of the like. I'm going to mention that this is a very, a very revealing of a lot of skin, and you know, fairly impractical because there's like a like a chest plate. 
and not a whole lot else. So like you could get stabbed mm-hmm. really anywhere. Yeah. Other than a direct, a direct hit uh, from the front. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, so security guards from the hospital arrive just as Katinya is dying. They try to take Eden into custody, but Eden flees after trying to use magic on the guards like they did with the rapists. Uh, but this time the magic fails. So Eden decides to go to their home to lay low. Uh, and there Eden finds their mother watching Eden's kids. And Eden tells the kids rather harshly to go to bed uh, and then grabs a shot of whiskey to kind of wind down. Although it, uh, the one thing that I do think is interesting is the idea that like uh, they comment, this body doesn't even like whiskey. So I think the alcohol preferences of individual bodies are interesting that it's not just Lucas's taste preferences, but there is some sort of physiological response that interferes with his right. tasting. It's I'm going to, I'm going to comment the interesting thing, the couple <laughs> of interesting things that I find here, but yeah. Yeah. Although then it's like, is that implying that women are predisposed to not like genetically yeah. to not like whiskey? So it's, it's weird. Yeah, I, I could very much see Lucas's narration being like, maybe if I got a white wine spritzer. <laughs> yeah. Um, then there's a knock at the door, and Eden goes to investigate. It's Warstrike. Uh, Warstrike says, Hello, Mrs. Blake, although I'm sure I'd rather you call, or I'm sure you'd rather I call you Lucas. So that's the cliffhanger ending. Mm hmm. Um, so issue two picks up with War Strike um, coming on super intimidating and mocking, uh, saying, How does it feel to have been a powerful warrior, a man, and now to be this? He also compares the uh, mantra armor or uniform or whatever to looking like something from a rock video. Immediately, I think, like, oh, you look like you're in a rock video, kind of a behind the times joke for 1994, but like maybe this War Strike guy never got into grunge. Yeah, I wonder what he was listening to in 1994. <laughs> right, I mean, like I can see, I, I mean, I can see like the sort of an 80s kind of over the top metal thing, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I I can see being a mercenary doesn't leave you with a lot of time to watch MTV VH1. True, more true. more the pity. Uh, Eden changes into Mantra and kicks Warstrike in the junk, uh, but he makes a joke about how he's wearing a cup because he's a man. Uh, then the kids show up, and uh, Mantra is hoping they'll call the cops because there's a stranger in the house menacing their mom. Um, but they just the kids just assume that it's one of Eden's boyfriends. So I don't want to like shame anybody here, but like this guy is dressed in like a red and blue, you know, skin tight uniform with pouch, you know, ammunition pouches all over the place, um, a big chest logo, and a huge trench coat. Some kind of weird black triangular war paint on his face, and the kids look at him and go like, "Oh, another one of these guys." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to assume that like Eden's type beforehand for Brent was Rob Liefeld characters, yeah, just <laughs> just absolute weirdos, you know, po- possibly uh, survivalists. I was like, "Oh, another guy with a huge gun with a nuclear radiation symbol slapped on it." 
I mean, in any case, they're 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 just worried that this person is going to try to replace their father. Right. So it's like, <laughs> doesn't matter if it's if he's wearing a trench coat or he's like wearing glasses and a, and khakis. It's <laughs> it's all the same concern. So it turns out that uh, Warstrike has some sort of precognitive sense that told him who Eden is and that Lucas would be reincarnating reincarnating into this body and where to find them. Um, this precognitive sense is very useful because as far as I can tell, he never, in the re- issues they read like it today, he's never going to use this precognitive sense again, I don't think. <laughs> so that was a very tidy way of being of like setting up the end of the cliffhanger of the first issue. Yeah, they, they kind of forgot to check his trading card stats <laughs> right. as the series went on to see what his powers were. It's like, oh, wait, precognitive sense. That would have been really useful in most of these <laughs> issues. Um, so Warstrike ex- explains that the job that he did was not the one that he was paid to carry out. So the job that he did was killing killing Lucas and Lucas's new body. Um, and he spouts the typical cliches about how he doesn't like to be used or he likes to know what he's doing or whatever. Some sort of mercenary's code going mm. back to uh, Lobo. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, he says that he wants to help Mantra out. Um, but he also says, don't you worry your, your pretty little head about that blue eyes to Mantra. And Mantra kicks them out. Um, I cannot track what this guy wants at all. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to, so like, I figured out that like, I was supposed to kill. So I was paid to do something and then I killed you. That was apparently not what I was hired to do. Although he never says what he was hired to do. So mm-hmm. that makes that tricky. But I have a pre flash that you are being reincarnated into this woman's body. I'm going to barge in. I'm going to sort of make gendered threats and <laughs> mockery at you but then actually i really care about you and i want i want to help you and then i'm going to make a sexist crack and laugh at you i war strike is a complete enigma enigma to me in terms of what is going on in that head it feels like they're trying to set up like a sam and diane type dynamic (laughs) but it just comes across as like inconsistent characterization yeah like what if what if Sam got hit in the head a whole lot and was not really sure what the mm-hmm. deal what he wanted out of Diane? Uh, so uh, after uh, Montrick explore strike out, um, it's still that same night. They were just resurrected in that body, so they're understandably tired, and they go to bed only to be awoken by Eden's kids the next morning saying it's time for school. Uh, Montrick gets the kids out of the house and goes to shower. Um, they complain that women's hair takes too long to dry. Um, in 1994, you could have gotten a pixie cut. That would have been fashionable, I was going to say. <laughs> um, and while they're waiting, they check up on the magic shop from last issue. It seems that the shop is closed for some private event, which is probably related to the mask. Uh, Mantra decides they'll probably need money at some point. So they find out where Eden worked and they go into work. Um, they put on sort of a purple jumpsuit that reminds me of the Beyonders from Secret Wars 2. I'm mm-hmm. sure completely coincidental, but has a, some sort of continuity with our our podcast. Yeah. Uh, Eden's ex-husband drops by with the child support check. Um, of course, Mantra doesn't recognize who this person is, but they figure it out from uh, the dude's likeness to his son. Um, Mantra goes out to lunch with a guy and decides that he's a great dude. And that the divorce must have been her fault because nobody would divorce someone as hot as Eden, I guess, is the is the rationale there. 
Um, so I think again, I think that's supposed to be the character and not the writer deciding mm-hmm. that. But um, I feel like he should end like most of his captions with "Am I right, fellas?" <laughs> right. You know what's great is leaving the toilet seat up. I don't know why women don't like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so in this process, Mantra has learned a little bit about Eden and has gotten the ex-husband, whose name we don't learn, and I don't think in any of the five issues that we've read today we learn his name at all. Um, he gets They get him to take the kids for the night. Uh, meanwhile, we cut to Boneyard's lair or realm, some sort of cavey lair like Skeletor would have. One of his goons is torturing Archimage. And then something super weird happens. So Boneyard's costume or whatever design includes some sort of a skull thing on his belt, like a huge sort of grinning skull. Uh, Boneyard picks up a rat and the skull belt opens up its teeth and bites the head off the rat. And then Boneyard whips the rat at Archimage. So, like, at this point, however you feel about whether the uh, male warrior trapped in woman's body plotline is interesting or not, um, I want to stop more. I want to stop here and learn more about this rat-eating belt thing that's that he has. Because it's, it's really... And, like, the skull's mm-hmm. eyes kind of close. Like, it's enjoying biting the head off the rat. I, I have to say, this rat-eating belt is one of my favorite Guided by Voices songs. <laughs> Yes. Um, so after this, our perhaps the highlight of my enjoyment of this run, um, we cut back to Mantra, who is trying to apply makeup to their face and overdoing it because, you know, jokes, it's a dude trying to apply makeup for the first time to a woman. Um, they put way too much makeup on, although the coloring makes it look like that could be, be just any 1990s uh, comic book character. Then they put on a red dress and go to the private function at the magic shop. By the time they get there, I mean, their makeup looks pretty good. So it seems like Luke has got really good at putting on makeup really fast. So there's a lot of of talk about how Mantra is basically able to make any man do whatever they want in this body. So they sort of charm the dude working the door by saying, you know, I don't have an invitation but I'm really hot, and I have this little weird mask thing. <laughs> uh, Warstrike, it turns out, out of costume, is at this charity or whatever this function is, um, and Warstrike is chatting to some woman. Uh, Mantra sows a little discord and learns his real name, which is Brandon Tark, which is not important at all, but they make a point of <laughs> pointing it out, so I'm going to point it out here. I'm sort of confused at this point about um, the function that they're at, because, like... So, like, it's a magic shop, like a sort of a, you know, magic supplies. Like, I I would assume, you know, top hats and false bottom dressers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a magic shop like on Buffy where it's purportedly real. But there is, like, a black tie gala thing going on here tonight. Yeah. It sort of seems like something they'd hold in Gotham City where, like, a magic, a stage magic themed villain would would strike. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering what the, the square footage of this magic shop, like the other 364 days of the year, how was, mm-hmm. how was this magic shop proprietor paying the taxes on this property? 
Maybe some magical accounting. Perhaps. perhaps. I wonder if that isn't the uh, the backstory that they created for the Ultraverse, that this this magic shop is very profitable. Yeah. Attack, uh, attracts a high-class clientele. Um, anyway, the auction for that mask begins, uh, but Notch and his compatriots show up, and um, they're all kind of wearing, like, a... Is it sequins? Do you think, like, the... The outfits that they're wearing are sort of be sequin. <laughs> oh, okay. I was I was like interpreting it as like studded leather armor. Kind that of, that's but... probably what is what is meant to, what it's meant yeah, to be. I like I like your interpretation better. Yeah, it's very elegant. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they show up. Uh, Mantra runs for the mask, but they trip because again, high heels. Not used to running in high heels. Um, but the mask sort of calls out to Mantra. And they put it on, and all of a sudden, they're back in the mantra armor and shooting flame blasts without really understanding how they're doing that. Uh, War Strike jumps into Linda Hand, and suddenly they're having a team up. Uh, mantra, in the course of all this fighting with these dudes, sort of decides, like, oh, hey, I have fire powers. Maybe I also have the, you know, the ability to control the other three classical elements as well, which um, I feel is kind of entitled. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I have fire powers. Like, for a lot of superheroes, fire powers is enough. Yeah. Don't don't go assuming, like, oh, I must also have water powers or this power set really sucks. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, you wouldn't see Johnny Storm, like, just making that assumption. Yeah, like, oh, I wish I had ice powers, too. That would be cool, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out this entitlement or whatever is absolutely well-founded because uh, Mantra is able to unleash a water blast. Uh, we also get a pretty ridiculous panel of of Mantra kind of juggling a couple of bad guys in midair using wind power, like like a cartoon strongman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I found that amusing. Uh, so Notch sneaks up behind Mantra and stabs at the cloak. And somehow the cloak sort of, like, it's hard to describe this without seeing it, but it's like the knife goes in and it comes back out at the same angle, but in a different spot. So it's like redirecting the attack but we'll never learn how it works. <laughs> there's some more fight scene going on, but the two bickering henchmen, and there's these two bickering henchmen who are sort of, they seem like they're going to be like a recurring feature where they're sort of like blaming each other for like, Oh no, he did that. No, I did that. No, I, I did this good thing. No, he did that bad thing. Um, but it doesn't really come up much more. Um, yeah. They decide to teleport out of there with notch because they see the way the tide is turning the proprietor of the store has a legitimate concern that his weird store, whatever, however this business model works, has been absolutely trashed. And now Madra has taken his priceless magical mask that he intended to auction off, possibly to pay for the taxes for this huge space. And Madra pretty much just tells him to get over it. Like, yeah, I saved everyone. I'm going to take this as a get, as a recompense. You're welcome. I, f- I feel bad for the, the independent businessman. Yeah. Yeah, not not the most super heroic move yet. <laughs> uh, Mantra ends up ditching War Strike and takes off flying with their air powers, and this is portrayed as sort of like the first time that they felt good since inhabiting Eden's body. Um, Mantra returns home in Eden's form. Um, apparently, the dad, the kid's dad, ditched the kids because they wouldn't tell him anything about Eden's boyfriends. This is probably why Eden got custody of the kids. <laughs> if like, mm-hmm. oh, hey, can you watch the kids? Sure. Hey, can you tell me about your mom's boyfriends? No. You know what? I'm going to leave you two pre-teenage kids 
alone. See you later, kids. They are going to be scarred from the events of this series. <laughs> but the kids, uh, I guess, you know, rebound because they are used to this terrible neglect and abuse. <laughs> they, ask, they ask their mom to take them to the movies. And Mantra agrees, taking a sort of attitude of like, well, they won't be my problem much longer, so I might as well keep them happy for now. Um, so at the movies, uh, Mantra as Eden is sort of dealing with the little mom tasks, you know, getting the popcorn and soda for the kids, taking the kids to the bathroom. Um, then all of a sudden, a bunch of identical men in tank tops and sunglasses show up. They finish each other's sandwiches. Uh, sen- <laughs> I almost said sandwiches. They finish each other. <laughs> Damn it, Frozen. They finish each other's sentences. Like each one of them takes one word in like a sentence like, she is around here somewhere. Mantra goes, them again? They must be able to sense the mask. So are these the the, the sequined bad guys from before? Because they weren't doing the the gimmick in the earlier fight, right? Um. Uh, maybe this is like their their like casual going out garb and and like the sequins or their fancy magic shop gala garb. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, they they are bound to the having to dress up as anybody. Yeah. Um. So Mantra engages them in battle. There's some fight scene stuff that I don't understand from the art, and I'm not sure if that's a writing thing or a Terry Dodson being like a younger artist at this point but there's like a scene where mantra makes kind of a flame blast that burns two of the dudes but their shadows are still fighting her or are those different people uh so i actually have to go back and look at that again because i think i was also confused and it looks like maybe she burnt one or two of them to like a blackened crisp okay but there's there's but there's more of them yeah so after some uh ambiguous fighting let's say uh, the fight spills open into the, the theater where the kids are. This distracts Mantra long enough for one of the goons to get the drop on them, and we leave with Mantra at knife point. So, in issue three, we start off uh, where we left off. The identical men in sunglasses and tank tops are pinning Mantra down and threatening to remove their mask with a knife. Uh, We get some more of Lucas cursing his new weak, quote, uh, female form. Uh, Mantra remembers the words um, Archimage's henchperson said to them in the hospital, which were, change, growth, power, let that be your mantra. Uh, So then Eden shouts, my mantra, and then hits the bad guys with a powerful gust of wind. So I initially I didn't know if change growth power or shouting my mantra was like their like activation word or something for the powers, but I have a feeling that mantra is just a word that they wanted to apply to this character, and they had to sort of come up with like a rationale afterwards of there have to be some sort of magic words, but yeah, um, it's not um, it, it's certainly not important <laughs> to the, to the understanding of this of this comic as it. As far as you need yeah. to understand what's going on, but yeah, it is, I think it is it sort was, of weird. I have to admit that it took me 25 years or so to realize that the name Mantra has the word man in it. Whoa! <laughs> is that I just, just... I didn't... That did not occur to me at any point until um... literally just now. 
Oh, I mean, yeah. wait, wait, stop, stop the, stop. Wait, we got, we got to start over. <laughs> you just dropped your your Kobayashi coffee cup. And oh man, it's shattering on the ground. <laughs> Whoa, um, you just this. It's it's rare to get the the thing that you're talking about recontextualized on the spot in the middle of this, but <laughs> yeah, was, cool. I mean that's that's the power of this of this series. <laughs> so then Mantra uses flame powers to burn up the rest of the bad guys, and then uh, they and then Mantra flies away. And so because the other the- theater goers heard them shout my Mantra, they now think Eden's superhero name is Mantra. Uh, Mantra goes to visit Strauss and tells him to stop sending his goons after them trying to get the mask back. Mantra and Strauss agree to some kind of possible future alliance. And then Mantra realizes they left their kids back at the movie theater. Uh, Child Protective Services shows up and, you know, it's like, oh, hey, are these your kids? But they don't really even ask Eden, like, where were you? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. so there was like a big assassin fight at this movie theater where were you maybe at this time but um but i mean between that and the dad ditching the kids for not spilling the beans about eden's boyfriends i feel like cps has a file on his family and they're just sort of like building up the evidence to make their case to the state so there was this violent attack at a movie theater and people got separated and then like rather than just the cops being around they're like immediately getting cps in there (laughs) because the mother's away it seems like there's definitely red flags that have been raised before. So Eden and uh, so Eden then drives the kids home. Uh, the little Evie is being very talkative, so Eden yells at her to shut the hell up. Uh, but later, Lucas slash Eden feels bad about yelling at Evie, so they try to apologize. Uh, but then, in the course of apologizing. Eden suggests that maybe Evie should go live with her father for good, which is not the best parenting <laughs> move. Like, you know. Yeah, especially yeah, considering what we saw last issue, he might just leave the house for hours at a time because you won't tell me about your mom's new boyfriend. Right. So then Eden's boyfriend, Brent, shows up to apologize for whatever caused Eden to run out the last time they were together uh, way back in issue one. Meanwhile, Eden decides to go visit the lawyer, another callback to issue one, uh, who we saw Lucas meeting with at the start of that issue to find out who betrayed... So Eden's going to try to find out who betrayed Archimage. Eden suspects the lawyer might have betrayed uh, the the warriors and Archimage. So they begin investigating the lawyer's file cabinets. Uh, as they do, a mysterious multicolored swirl of light appears. Then it forms into a blonde woman with a frilly half shirt, uh, a peace sign necklace, and tight black pants that are all billowy at the ankle. And this woman starts spouting lines like, Join the revolution, sister. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Love is the answer. Give peace a chance. Uh, so this woman's slash strange mystical being is a supervillain and early candidate for breakout character of, <laughs> of our podcast for 2020. Kismet Deadly, basically an evil hippie with the power of cliches and some kind of nebulous magical blasts and energy 
energy manipulation and such. So she starts fighting Mantra in some rainbow-colored psychedelic dreamlike dimension. Mantra thinks that she's some kind of magical defense the lawyer has set up to protect his bio cabinets, apparently. Um, there are a few panels that allow Malibu Comics to show off their proprietary coloring, uh, digital coloring effects. So yeah, this, this was state-of-the-art stuff at the time, the like... Mm-hmm. The, so you might as well you might as well go wild with that. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, you know, like you should get into the, the sort of frame of mind that Kismet De- Deadly seems to be, and just like groove out to the colors. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um. So Mantra ends up defeating Kismet Deadly by figuring out they can absorb the energy she's shooting at them. So pretty basic. Um. Mantra then sees a message from Archimedes that's kind of like pre-recorded that says Kismet Deadly was actually a magical construct he created to help teach them, quote, the further uses of the powers your female body possesses. Uh, Which really raises the question of why did Archimedes give her the form of an evil hippie? Eden then starts poking around in the file cabinets and finds a magic ring that glows when they move northward. The ring keeps getting hotter as they travel toward Bakersfield, California. Eden finds one of Lucas's former fellow warriors alive and reincarnated in the body of an elderly blind man, and another comrade has been reincarnated as a dog, uh, which again is... Archimedes just really bad at this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This, but, the, the, these, these, are, these are the literally like some of the least like Lucas gets, you know, a body of a woman, which he's not used to, but this is a woman with in some sort of inherent or latent magical powers. Mm-hmm. Maybe the blind guy, maybe the blind guy could have become daredevil and the dog could have become mm. Scooby. Pizza dog. <laughs> oh, okay i don't know yeah i'm speculating this is my this is my fan fiction okay <laughs> and i guess maybe we can maybe archimage was being tortured by boneyard when he was like aiming so i guess maybe i'm being too hard on him but. yeah so then we get a kind of an interesting moment when eden is again complaining about their body uh the um eden's comrade hamath says you were always the most macho dope I ever knew. So it seems like there, there's some kind of awareness that Lucas is kind of being a bigger asshole about having a woman's body than some of the other warriors might have been. So I found that kind of satisfying. I, I suppose, like, it's like, think of the guy who's the dog now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're complaining about, like, oh, my set, my center of gravity is weird. And it's like, you're a yeah. dog. You, you don't have thumbs anymore. <laughs> Yeah, uh, definitely could have been could have been worse. Uh, so then they they talk about who the traitor might be, but before they can arrive at any conclusions, Kismet Deadly returns. Thankfully, uh, we get some more hippie speak. Go with the flow, sis. Why march to a different drummer? And then Mantra basically <laughs> defeats her the same way she did about, or the same way they did about three pages ago, which is absorbing her energy and then firing it back at her. Um, but not before Kismet Deadly finally lives up to her name by killing the old man and the dog. 
killing them makes Kismet realize how much of a bummer death is. She says, I don't like this death bag. Being alive isn't as cool as I thought. And teleports away. Yeah. I uh, I have to say that this, this little uh, training program that Archimage has set up, um, fairly insensible why it's a hippie. Um, it killed two other people who, as far as we know, are not getting reincarnated because Archimage is otherwise indisposed. Mm-hmm. This was a this was a bad danger room, Archimage. I want, you, I want you I want you to know, as much we've been complaining about the scheme and like whether or not more people should be aware of this, but like I question that our world is being defended by this guy in yeah, his onesie. Archim- <laughs> he's a he's a terrible Archimage. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I, I feel like I feel like this should be. This is like when everybody watched the prequels and they're like, "Do the Jedi actually suck? Are they? Is that the point, <laughs> mm-hmm. or is it just yeah?" So at that point, someone sneaks up on Mantra and hits them with what looks like the Infinity Gauntlet, um, which we find out it's not in the next issue. But uh, Mantra is knocked out. Meanwhile, Strauss has been kidnapped. Uh, that's the magic store proprietor. Uh, Strauss has been kidnapped and tied up by Warstrike, who says, quote, a person I care about needs my help. Um, so again, we get some sense that even though he's been kind of a jerk who's also been kind of flirting with Mantra, it seems to hint it could be something more. Warstrike threatens to kill Strauss unless Strauss tells him how to find Mantra. I'm not sure. Like, what is he responding to? Like, is Mantra missing from like because like so in the next issue mantra is missing but from this issue mantra isn't so it's like is this his precognitive sense that we're i'm I, i'm doing i'm doing a lot of heavy lifting no prizing here i feel <laughs> yeah again it's uh poorly defined what what war strikes powers are besides having, having a big gun yeah elsewhere we see mantra waking up uh, they're on the ground in front of Boneyard and two, two of Boneyard's followers. Boneyard says, You awaken at last. This is fortunate. The bride should be fully conscious for the wedding. So issue four is uh, penciled by a different artist, by uh, Rob Phipps. Um, as far as storytelling, I think it's about equivalent i don't notice like a huge Hmm. dip or raise in quality so well done (laughs) so it opens with boneyard announcing that he has chosen mantra to be his bride he seems to know that mantra possesses some degree of magical powers and has some connection to archimage and here boneyard refers to archimage as his brother did we know this before or is this are we are we learning this now is brother symbolic uh i think this is all new okay that's good in issue four uh, <laughs> uh but uh so despite what boneyard seems to know about mantra's powers doesn't know that mantra is lucas so uh his plan is pretty much just that he wants to make magical babies with mantra that will increase his power because he will absorb them or something uh mantra gets away and calls not calls out Notch, who is there, our friend Notch from issue one, by his name. This tips Notch off about Mantra's true identity. Uh, Mantra finds Archimage's cell, but and tries to bust him out. But Archimage is doing this whole like this is your destiny thing. You got to roll with it. 
the magical henchmen have gauntlets that can hurt Mantra somehow, but she makes some kind of shield that repels their blasts. I know I'm, be- I'm being very vague here about what's going on, but it is sort of vague what the story is trying to convey. Especially because the f- the guy who knocked out Mantra in the last issue was apparently Brent, the boyfriend from issue one. Yeah. I would not have gotten that, but we are told in the caption that it was Brent, so... I don't know. He's kind of been sketchy since the start because when Eden runs out wearing his clothing, he's like, I'm going to kill her. Yeah. And at first I was like, it, it seemed like it transitioned into, it was one of those panel transitions where like Eden, Eden was thinking something about like, I'm going to get killed if I don't do X or Y, but maybe he's been a plant or something all along. I don't know. Maybe. It would be nice if this was addressed by the comic, but <laughs> we, roll, we roll with it. Um, mm-hmm. So Archimage asks Mantra if Mantra has determined who the traitor was yet. Um, Mantra doesn't know. Um, so Archimage tells Mantra to go and says, farewell, my daughter, which Mantra understandably doesn't like. <laughs> uh, this whole like non-planning ahead of time thing has really sort of soured Lucas on this Archimage situation. Yeah. Um, back in Eden's house, uh, Grandma comes back with the kids, and Eden's not there. So now she's suspicious that like Eden wouldn't normally be so irresponsible. What's with my daughter? Is this even my daughter? Back in Dimension X or wherever we're supposed to be, Mantra escapes Boneyard's castle and just determines that they're in some other dimension. It's sort of a like medievally like Dungeons and Dragons kind of village environment, but there's weird aliens there. They go into a tavern, which is basically the Star Wars cantina. Uh, Mantra notes that everyone is staring at them because of the hot lady body. Uh, And then Mantra orders a giant ale, but cannot pay. So the bartender offers to take them upstairs and extract payment some other way. Uh, Mantra grabs the dude and tells and threatens him. And the bartender is like, oh, maybe you want to try the, the courtyard. And in the courtyard, there's apparently a slave auction going on, and everybody thinks that Mantra is supposed to be on the auction block. So here is some advice. If you ever go to this bar, and you you don't have any money, don't try to get a drink, because the bartender will first make sexually aggressive comments at you, and Mm. then literally trick you into volunteering for a slave auction. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I have to ask, like, what kind of a slave auction has, like, drop-ins? Because everybody's like, oh, you're late for the mm. slave auction. Like, you don't show mm. up for your own slave auction. That's not how historically anything's worked. Mm-hmm. But um, some guards are about to capture Mantra when a man and woman show up and claim that Mantra is their slave already. They're wearing sort of pink-purple tights and purple capes. Um, both of their tops have plunging necklines, so they're sort of in equal opportunity of cleavage going on there at least <laughs> oh, we cut back to Eden's job where one of Eden's co-workers is apparently covering up uh, covering for Eden because the department is behind and I think here we see one of the problems that we're having in this series is that Barr is trying to develop a lot of subplots but really hasn't been able to give any of them enough time so like we don't even know what Eden's job is it seems to be some sort mm-hmm. of generic office thing but we don't know what Eden's coworkers really think about her. It's just sort of like we're just churning through some drama for the sake of drama. It could be maybe planting the seeds for like this this coworker is going to become a supervillain because 
She had to, like, pick up some extra shifts <laughs> to cover. Back to the Boneyard dimension, or whatever, the pink plunging neckline couple brings Mantra to their headquarters, which fo- uh, features, like, a huge medieval-style arsenal with spears and swords and stuff. Um, they reveal that their ancestors ruled this world before Boneyard had conquered it, and they say that they are hoping that Mantra will help them form a rebellion. You might assume that this issue has finally found its direction, like, this is what this issue was about. But no, they really <laughs> they actually just poison Mantra's drink. They think it's too risky if Boneyard should produce magical children. So they somehow know what Boneyard's plan was in marrying Mantra. I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> they know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they just decide they're going to kill Mantra to not risk it. But then Boneyard himself shows up. Boneyard has figured out that Mantra is Lucas somehow and says Lucas's name, which removes Mantra's powers, I guess, like in the first issue, how knowing Archimage's real name somehow turns him into a little doll or whatever. <laughs> Boneyard is totally into the whole wedding motif that he has set up for Mantra um, and gives them like a kiss before knocking out a Mantra. And I think this is just another of the ways in which the series subverts gender norms because Boneyard's the one that's totally into this wedding and like he's picking out the outfits he's planning <laughs> yeah. everything he's definitely been thinking about this since he was like 12 years old yeah boneyard is the groomzilla here mm-hmm. <laughs> they're gonna go fabulously into debt <laughs> for this for this one day yeah, well you know one day but it's a day you'll remember for the rest <laughs> of your life so anyway who should show up but our old pal Warstrike, who apparently procured some sort of teleporting gem from the guy who runs the magic shop to take him to Mantra, because even assuming like a really well-functioning actual magic magic shop, he just got a gem that says like, oh yeah, take me to Boneyard's world. It's got a great selection. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, and like, and he's and he's obviously he's well organized because he was able to find that in fairly short order. Mm-hmm. So I I would shop there for my magic with a K needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mantra wakes up in a wedding costume. So what? apparently whatever uh, Boneyard has dressed them in. Um, and Mantra says that it's more revealing than the armor that they were wearing, but I'm not totally sure that it is. It has sleeves, which is different. I think it would be like a matter of like mm-hmm. counting the square inches of, of stuff, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Mantra seems to think it's a downward move. They're in a jail cell with Boneyard's other brides. So I guess Mantra is not the first bride that Boneyard has taken. Um, the other brides give Mantra a knife, and Mantra says, well, this isn't going to be enough to kill... This, this is a little knife. This isn't going to be enough to kill Boneyard. Uh, the brides say, by tomorrow morning, it's not Boneyard you will wish to kill. So there's some grimness. As Mantra is led to the wedding, uh, Mantra thinks about... Um, for the first time, we mentioned somebody named Marina, who was... Apparently, Luke has his wife in his first incarnation. So we get a little bit of history there, but only a little bit. Uh, Archimage all of a sudden shows up and starts berating Mantra, saying, This woman is unworthy of you, Boneyard. She is stupid, ungrateful, loutish. This, and let's let's call it, it's negging. (laughs) Mm. Archimage just decided to neg Mantra into standing up for themselves. And it works. Apparently Eden's powers or latent powers or whatever are so great that Boneyard couldn't fully suppress them. 
and they just have to get Mantra riled up. Mantra actually hits Boneyard a couple of times, um, although he seems to heal from the wounds. War Strike shows up for the big battle, but convinces Mantra that they should cut and run while Boneyard is still recovering. You have some, I guess, 1940s-style japes of War Strike says, Honey, we have to go. And Mantra says, Don't ever call me honey. Later on, War Strike says, But don't forget to send me some pictures of you in that outfit. Uh, but at the end, uh, Mantra says goodbye to Boneyard's other brides. Uh, they offer to bring them back to Earth, but the brides are like, Boneyard hates you so much now that he won't even be remember to be cruel to us anymore. So, so happy ending there. Yeah, I guess they give the whole like our place is here, but like, is it? I, I bet yeah. you could be much happier in the dimension where you're, there's not Deathlock, Mister Sinister has some sort of legal hold over you. Um, but yeah, so Mantra and Warstrike decide to take off back to Earth using the magical gem that they got from the magic shop owner, but it doesn't work for some reason. Uh, Mantra is able to do it themselves on the next page using their own magic anyway, so I'm not sure why we needed this complication that lasted about three panels, but we're getting our drama where we can, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plunging neckline couple comes back to say goodbye. Um, no hard feelings, I guess, about trying to poison you because <laughs> we were so afraid of the potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mantra groans that the dude is probably going to fall in love with Mantra because everyone, every dude seems to. But actually, it's the lady of the two that's into Mantra. So first of all, they act like this is shocking. Like, oh, was she a lesbian all along? But all she does is kiss Mantra's hand. So it's not like... Yeah, it's like 1990s permissible level of non-heteronormativity. Yeah, I guess is the idea. But then, like, this also, like, apparently startles Warstrike. Like, oh, maybe she's gay, but he seems like a pretty... And this is, sounds weird because he's such like a lout in so many ways, but like <laughs> he's open-minded in a way, but in a backwards way that like, well, whoever's mind is in this body, I find this body very attractive. <laughs> so I'm going to hit on them. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just messing with them psychologically, but. Yeah, he needs to figure some things out. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we could really go on a journey with Warstrike, but, <laughs> but we don't. Um. <laughs> So anyway, Mantra and Warstrike return home. Mantra vows one day to return to finish the job of defeating him. Even though they just left where Boneyard was and was like, oh, we sort of got him on the ropes, but let's leave now. I guess they're procrastinating, which, like, I can't really blame them, I suppose. And also, I, I Boneyard, I don't even know that he's that urgent a threat. Like, <laughs> it's not like he's talked about opening a portal to the dimension that I know of or like trying to destroy earth. Um, I mean, it's been like a thousand years. I think taking a couple of months off <laughs> is, is probably fine. Yeah. I'm, that's, that's one of my major criticisms that I have with the series in general is that like, I mean, clearly he's the bad guy because he has the sort of corpse like face and the, you know, cyborg attachments and he has, a belt that eats that heads off of rats. <laughs> but but I'm like, and like, I know that's not like we ever like ask of like the He-Man show, like, well, what is Skeletor's like political motivation? But like, I don't know what Boneyard's deal is at all. Like, does he want to take over the world? Like one, one assumes, but 
we are really just told like we have to stop Boneyard, and we don't know what Boneyard's deal is other than he looks really, and his name is Boneyard, which can't yeah. be. You're probably not like a benevolent leader or whatever it is you plan to be. If your nom de plume is Boneyard, true, true, yeah. But I guess it's fine to leave him, leave him be for a bit, <laughs> and we'll we'll pick that up whenever we get another one-time magical gem that goes back to his dimension. We've, we've, we've pretty much lost the lost the plot of what's going on in Mantra at this point. <laughs> but we still have a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so usually we go by story arcs, um, but we went through issue five, uh, which doesn't really have too much to do with the whole Boneyard plot, but it's uh it's interesting so yeah we had, we, 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 had, we had to cover this one definitely mm-hmm. uh just based on the cover alone which is <laughs> mantra uh looking into like a cartoony mirror universe reflection of themselves um so i was like i have to see what this is all about <laughs> so we open up with uh there actually is some continuation of the previous plot Mantra and Warstrike go to visit Strauss, who'd previously given Warstrike that charm, um, but the charm was, again, temporarily prevented him from traveling back because it just was a one-way thing. So Warstrike and Mantra threaten him and tell him not to double-cross them again. Mantra breaks down and thanks Warstrike for coming to help them, uh, kind of the first moment of of i don't know mutual respect um they give war strike a handshake war strike as usual continues to kind of press things and says to you uh mantra says i'm a man war strike i don't i just have the body of a woman war strike says you keep saying that but if you get in touch with your female side uh again so Warstrike seems to be pretty open-minded about gender, but also is a total creep most <laughs> of the time. And ends their exchange with, quote, crazy broad must be that time of month for her. So, yeah, he's he's a, a piece of work. Yeah. Um, Lucas slash Eden uh, reflects about how they still want to get out of Eden's body, but they're realizing that they need to learn sorcery to rescue Archimage to make that happen. Uh, even though at this point, Archimage has basically told them on like two occasions that Lucas is in Eden's body for a reason. And so maybe should just kind of accept that. <laughs> so then we see a ghostly spirit uh, flying through the desert sky and it kind of looks like a plume of smoke in the shape of the green goblin's head. Apparently, he fought the Ultraverse superhero Prime previously, and due to popular demand, he's (laughs) back. Uh, He's also a henchman of Boneyard who wants to kill Mantra so that his boss will grant him a new non-smoky form. Yeah, it's it's true that... uh... I remember in Wizard, everybody was talking about the the cloud goblin that was... <laughs> <laughs> who, who doesn't even seem to have a name. Yeah. 
he has his own distinctive font in the in the dialogue, but uh, this unnamed classic character is <laughs> uh, able to take the shape of others. So he flies to a theater of people attending a film marathon of classic cartoons. And rather than possessing a human, he enters the movie screen and becomes a Wiley E. Coyote knockoff called Wiley Wolf. Which, if he had taken like 10 seconds to watch the cartoon, <laughs> he would have realized was yeah. not even the best character within that <laughs> that short to, to become. Yeah. He's a cloud goblin. They don't necessarily have... I mean, the, the classic Looney Tunes characters are sometimes hard to find today. Mm-hmm. Much less if you're living in wherever Cloud Goblin comes from. I'm just going to call him Cloud Goblin because yeah. I like this. This is the name of my yeah. memoir. <laughs> Cloud Goblin. Uh, Eden returns home to find their children being back- babysat by a teenage girl with uh, who Eden's mom had called to watch the children. Uh, Eden's son Gus is still mad at them. And Eden's mother also wants to know why they are acting so irresponsible. Eden's like, that's none of your business. So their mom leaves. The next day, Eden decides to go to work uh, for the first time since, I think, issue two. (laughs) And so after telling Eden that they look lovely as usual, their boss starts talking to them about some kind of offer. Eden mistakes it as an offer to become his mistress. Uh, but it's really just an offer, or it's really an offer to work with the government agency tasked with tracking ultras called Aladdin. And Eden decides it's a good idea to work with the agency so they can kind of keep tabs on it and protect themselves from the threat the agency might pose to them as at being an ultra. So Aladdin, I guess, is meant to be sort of like the the shield equivalent, maybe, of the Ultraverse. But mm-hmm. I, I have to wonder, like, what is Eden's job? Because I had assumed that it was some sort of generic office job because, you know, Eden just go, you know, Luke has an Eden body just goes in and sort of like, oh, there's, you know, a fairly non-intrusive security presence or whatever. Yeah. But the boss is like, oh, hey, here's a top secret spy job I can offer you. If you want it, like, how did, I don't even have words. Why is this happening? (laughs) Yeah, that, it really comes out of nowhere. And it also makes me wonder, like, what was Eden's coworker, who was like, just kind of a, like a mousy looking woman. uh, What was she doing to cover for her? Was she like planning special ops in central america or yeah something. or yeah or organizing international hits or something <laughs> but yeah apparently eden's like boring office job that takes place in some kind of generic office park is actually like you might be a candidate to be <laughs> to to run this top secret you know black ops division yeah uh, but they wisely jump at this opportunity afterwards Eden gets a call from their friend, Marla, who you might remember from way back in issue one when Lucas jumped into Marla's husband and got him killed. Uh, Marla needs Eden's support while she goes to the morgue to identify Carl's body. So at the morgue, Marla starts crying, and we also get a single panel of Eden also crying, which is really the first real emotion aside from anger 
that we've seen from this badass warrior. Um, I also, this was one of the things where I, I thought there was potential to play, play around with this idea of, uh, kind of the nature versus nurture, like mind body stuff with, with emotions. Like, yeah. Do they have just like a physiological response to this? That's kind of overwhelming their, their, you know, their mental state and kind of taking control um, but this is really like the only indication of that we get so far. Mm. Um, anyway, it doesn't really amount to much yet. Eden also notices that in the morgue, their boyfriend Brent is in there, uh, apparently dead of a suicide. Um, again, I have no idea how does his suicide relate to potentially attacking mantra before with the gauntlet thingy. Yeah. He has a, a weird arc to track. Cause it's apparently seems like totally normal dude who is dating this random woman and then attacks the woman's body with the infinity gauntlet, then <laughs> kills himself and I mean, I, I, I could, you know, like, to be fair, maybe this is something that comes up in issue six or subsequent, which we um, have not. And I don't want to speak for you, but probably will not <laughs> probably will not read. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it is really weird. And I'm not totally sure what anybody. I have no idea what anybody's motivation yeah. is in this, in this comic other than Lucas does not want to be in a woman's body. Yeah, and it's not even set up as like a mystery. Like, oh, I wonder if there's a connection, and uh, so it's just kind of left hanging at the moment. Yeah. So Eden leaves in mantra garb, only to be attacked by the cartoon demon slash smoke goblin Wily Wolf, who attempts to kill them with a giant anvil. They fight near the school playground where Eden's daughter is playing, and uh, it's all kind of cartoon style uh, combat although there's a pretty disturbing panel where where mantra shoves their sword into the wolf's mouth and it the top of his head stretches to like conform to the shape of this long serrated weapon uh, so it's a little bit gruesome uh, mantra on the playground meets evie after defeating or after kind of driving away the smoke goblin and finds out that Evie is a big fan of them. Uh, and so later that night at home, Eden learns that Evie has an Ultras magazine that has Mantra as a character. And at first it looks like it's a comic book with various Ultraverse characters, but then we find out later that there's a model posing for photographs in the Mantra costume, and it also has a centerfold which yeah I'm... i mean this impressionable young child should not be reading this who is this aimed at i don't know i think the only magazine appropriate with a centerfold that's appropriate for a child is the 90s nintendo power <laughs> but i yeah i don't know what's there is i i think so i was doing some research on the ultraverse and stuff and they're was something about an ultra magazine, but I don't know if it actually existed or if it was like something that exists in universe. Cause there was a, yeah. I read a 
interview that this magazine supposedly had with the actual mantra. But I don't know if that was real or if you, or maybe that was like some fan fiction thing. Yeah, and there, my, there was my, that... my bringing this up only only clouds the issue, but. <laughs> and there was like the trend in the, especially in the '90s, of like real models posing as these over-the-top sexualized female characters. So. Yeah. Anyway, it's it was a weird time. <laughs> um. So, so so much of this we just hand wave away going like it was the 90s mm-hmm. you remember yep or you don't but take, take our word for it so mantra makes the assumption that the demon cartoon character is going to see the magazine and assume the real or assume the model is the real mantra so uh eden uses the address of the magazine to go track down the model and the photographer which makes no sense because, like, this magazine is printed already, and the, the model and the photographer should be gone for like weeks at least. But yeah, I mean, it's like it's like it's like they're they're still doing it. They're still doing the, the photo shoot, even though the photo shoot is out. This magazine is is going to like drive us insane if we think if we think about <laughs> it any longer. It, it it is like it is like the, the Necronomicon, where like just to, <laughs> to contemplate it. Just to go mad. Like, how are we? Did they download it to the paper? Is it? Is it like a daily print magazine? <laughs> Do they have this, this, going this, this model on retainer and they're shooting her every night? Yeah. For a different centerfold. Ah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a whole nother podcast, I think. <laughs> Mantra uh, arrives at this kind of sleazy studio slash office building. Uh, once there, the photographer offers them money to pose for the centerfold, um, I guess because it's the real deal and not this model. Mantra warns him in the model about the cartoon, but not before uh, being sucked into the cartoon that's playing on a nearby TV. So over the next few panels, uh, I mentioned there was some cartoon violence earlier on, but this is a straight-up kind of homage to classic Looney Tunes cartoons with Mantra and the Demon. So the Demon, dressed up as Elmer Fudd at first, tries to hunt Mantra and ends up running, rolling them flat with the steamroller. Mantra inflates himself in classic cartoon style and then cuts the Demon in half. Uh, but it's all cartoon violence, so none of it's permanent. So then Mantra uses a riff on the old duck season, rabbit season, Bugs Bunny bit to convince the demon to jump into a dimensional breach, thus defeating the smoke goblin. Um, So, yeah, fairly, I would say a fairly original ending, well, in that it's ripping off a cartoon and not another comic book, but yeah, I I will I will say I th- I think so when you read this, it actually points out like how hard it is to actually draw cartoons, and that like mm-hmm. drawing comic books and drawing cart like cartoon cartoons are not like the same skill because the style of the drawing already is like sort of exaggerated and polished and shiny and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's pretty much just that like Mantra doesn't have a nose and their eyes the eyes are a little bigger. And it's just sort of simplified, and it's like it's it, they, these would these would be if you saw these cartoons, these would be terrible cartoons. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is like flash animation from 
the early 2000s level cartooning. Yeah. After the demon disappears, Mancha returns to the photographer, tells him to stop depicting them in the magazine, and then tells him to pay the model better, which, ending on a worker's rights message, is pretty pretty cool. I dig it. Uh, Meanwhile, the demon returns to Boneyard's dimension, who curses him to stay in his cartoon body, eliciting an annoyed grunt, or doe, as you might know it better. (laughs) Um, So that's the end of our final kind of tossed off issue. should reflect on what we've just discussed as a whole i'm having a hard time getting over the the rat eating belt <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um i don't know what do you what do you what do you what did you think so i th- i think we've kind of pointed out that there's there does seem to be a lot of potential here mm-hmm. um like you you kind of mentioned joked about being concerned about the the kids but uh, it, it does seem like it's kind of laying the groundwork for that arc where Eden doesn't have any kind of connection to these kids. And then maybe over the course of the series develops some kind of affection for them. Um, yeah. And so I can, uh, again, not having read any of the other issues, like it seems like it's setting up some interesting arcs uh, that I, but they're not really advancing them much. Um, which you know it's five issues in so that's kind of hard to do um so i like that aspect mm-hmm. part of the thing is i was sort of surprised at how so like mike w Barr, like i've read things by mike w Barr. i've read some of his de- detective comics issues which i hardly recommend but i was sort mm-hmm. of surprised at how like how shoddy the some of the story was and like mm-hmm. how much was mostly how much was unclear after five yeah. five issues and like I almost wonder if it's like, well, they, they did get together ahead of time and they put together like a real story Bible and stuff with all the mm-hmm. the rules and stuff. So I wonder if it's almost one of those things of like, you know that it's in the, you know what the, what the backstory is because you've worked it out already. You, you like forget to put it in the comic. Yeah. Because like, I, so like, here's some, some things I'm thinking about is that like, so the powers are kind of vague, which is in some respects par for the course for a magic based superhero that, you know. Yeah. I don't feel like mm-hmm. Lucas ever gets much of a personality. They never, they don't have, seem to have any insights about like what it's really like to live for 1500 years. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, like clearly they are Lucas is experienced or something, but it could be like 10 years for as much as he gives a sense of like being a lived in person. Yeah. And like, he's just sort of a dude. You know, he's like mm-hmm. a slightly macho dude. Like the only thing that I know about his inner life is that he likes whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> just a gateway yeah. to the soul, perhaps. But and we get that like hint about his his first wife, um, and it it almost it feels like the whole first five issues are kind of like the first third of a character arc, where it's just like here's where the character is at right now. They're encountering this change but we don't see any of it like moving forward. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there's a lot of plot as well, which is, makes it hard to, to move those things forward successfully. Well, I'm, see, um, I'm almost wondering if like the monthly superhero comic thing is not like a great 
vessel or format for whatever the story is because there's like it's trying to do so much mm-hmm. i feel and like uh, the the villains were a we talked about Boneyard, but they're like either hilariously over uh, underwhelming, like with the the cartoon ghosts or Kismet Deadly, or just kind of generic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like that stuff. I was I was more just interested in like this character navigating this situation and like what's gonna happen with their children and right. and. Uh, you know what's going on with War Strike, and yeah, are they I, going to? Is this comic going to like lean into those their relationship, um, and how is it going to navigate that? And like nineteen nineties, very heterocentric genre. So the whole thing is kicked off by this magical mask, and like it's sort of dropped. And I'm like, is that supposed to be a mystery? Like, are we? Am I supposed to be? I mean, whether or not I am, like, am I supposed to be curious as a reader? as like the origin of this magical mask or is it just like it's a magic mask that's the it's the the gamma rays that turn bruce banner into the hulk just like you just accept it right or do i like am i supposed to want to know like what is this mask how does it interact with eden's latent magical whatever there's like a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces i feel and like it's almost sort of unfocused as to like is it about man and woman's body or is it learning to use magic or is it identity stuff or is it fighting Skeletor or Boneyard or whatever in his dimension? You know, it's like the, this, the traditional superhero thing is pretty straightforward, Mm -hmm. but this adds like a lot of dimensions that are not really don't have time to pay them off in this, like these 20 page stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'd say it's uh, like definitely ambitious and yeah, yeah, definitely ambitious. For a 1990s uh, story to even like deal with anything involving kind of fluidity of gender is is uh, progressive in a way. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obviously we've mentioned some of the other ways in which it's not as sensitive, and when looking at it from today's standards, but <laughs> I, I will I will say one area of insensitivity is that the uh, the letters page. I'm <laughs> just looking at it now is called so like you know the letters pages on comics usually have amusing names and the the one here is called mantras mail and it's spelled m-a-l-e and then they cross it off and write m-a-i-l uh, <laughs> yeah is, it's a it's a mixed bag yeah and it is like for all the jokes they do the mantra the character themselves makes about like this armor is impractical like the armor still is really impractical. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think there's only so far you can take the like, oh, I know this is like a ridiculously skimpy costume, but. Yeah, yeah, they definitely uh, kind of have, try to have their cake and eat it too. Or yeah, that's, that, that's that's exactly what, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like the, the main, like from the shoulders up, I thought the, the mantra design is pretty cool. Like the, <laughs> The cloak and the face paint, um, yeah, like the color scheme overall. Um, I could see like a really decent reboot of this this character, mm-hmm. um, just updated. So, would you like to know what happens to the Ultraverse after this? I would. Um, so the first volume of Mantra actually runs for a very respectable twenty four issues. 
Um, the Ultraverse was pretty popular when it started out and did some aggressive marketing. Um, they had some media tie-ins and actual like television commercials. Um, we mentioned the Nightman live-action series, but there's also a short-lived Ultra Force cartoon and toy line, which I don't ever remember watching. But um, You should watch the intro to the Ultra Force <laughs> cartoon because it has a very 90s theme song. Oh, I would look forward to that. Uh, the tipping point for the Ultraverse came in 1994 when uh, Marvel Comics bought Malibu Comics. For years, there was sort of a mean-spirited joke that uh, Marvel had bought Malibu just because they wanted access to that um, proprietary computering, computer coloring technology that we mentioned earlier. And they were sort of like, oh, I guess it comes with these characters too. Maybe we should do something with them. More recently, it's come out that um, it seems that DC Comics was looking to buy Malibu as well. And Marvel was lose, worried about losing market share by them picking up, you know, a whole bunch of comics all at once. So I guess it was about it was about the characters and their value to some degree. Although I guess getting the computer coloring in the deal probably didn't hurt. Um, a fun yeah. fact, yeah, a fun fact about Marvel buying Malibu is that Malibu had previously bought a publisher called Air Cell Comics, which published the comic book Men in Black, which the movies were loosely based on. And this is why, if you watch the first Men in Black movie, it says something about, to the uh, extent about, like, uh, based on the Marvel comic, even though hmm. it's an acquisition of an acquisition. Um, so anyway, Marvel owns Malibu, and right away Marvel starts tinkering with the Ultraverse. They start a big crossover called Black September that ends with the, all the Ultraverse titles getting canceled and the surviving ones getting rebooted. Uh, Mantra is revamped with a teenage cisgender girl inheriting the role, which I guess sort of kills anything of interest that you have with the mantra concept other than female presenting magic warrior. And uh, after a couple issues of that, Mike Barr ended up uh, walking away. Uh, mantra wouldn't last much longer because the entire ultraverse went under partially because at that point, the bottom had dropped out on the early nineties comic boom and sales were down across the industry. And um, partially, I suppose that like if you were a fan of the ultraverse to this point, you might not appreciate Marvel messing with all the characters that you liked. Um, one of the things I remember them mm -hmm. doing from ads running in the Marvel comics that I was actually buying at the time was they would import Marvel characters into the Ultraverse, like Adam Warlock and Loki, and there was like the Phoenix Force and like the Infinity Gems, um, and Juggernaut, I think, was on a team. Uh, the Black Knight joined Ultra Force, and I feel like a pretty misguided marketing push to put like among the least popular Avengers, sorry, Black Knight fans <laughs> out there, but one of the least popular Avengers, and he's like the leader of your most popular team, which I feel is like some sort of commentary about like if we get the lowest ranked guy in our universe and put him on mm -hmm. your in your universe, he immediately becomes the alpha dog and leads leads your equivalent of the Avengers. So yeah, the Ultraverse kind of just quietly went under. Um, Marvel still owns the characters and they canonically exist on earth number three, zero, you know, whatever. Uh, once in a while, there's talk about maybe they should do a revival. And I think Steve Englehart was talking with them at some point, um, last decade, but I think there's all sorts of boring legal and contractual stuff about like who owns the characters and like what profit participation, the initial creators get to take in these things. So I think it's pretty much just like, not worth it, which is kind of a a bummer to sum up an entire superhero universe is like, yeah, it might make some money, but maybe not enough to bother. So we end on kind of a yeah. bummer in the, 
in the Ultraverse story. But we will now shift gears and uh, to happier subjects, yes. which is crazy details from comics history. And we'll have our first ra- our first go round of cannon fodder for 2020. Yep, the slate is cleaned um, from last year. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe I won, but mostly guessing more obscure comic trivia being correctly is not really. It's winning in the lowest possible sense <laughs> that winning can be. Well, in any case, I've spent the last month just studying every <laughs> wiki for Marvel and DC. Uh, I have I've barely slept. Uh, <laughs> quit my job. Right. So I I feel like I am ready. Okay. Okay. Do you want to do you want to do you want to go first? Uh, one. I'll let you ask a question, or okay. I'll let you choose since you won. Last That's year, you, your, your you win the coin toss. Your inclination seems to be for me to ask the question first, so I will, I will do that. Okay. So, question one: uh, As mentioned earlier, Mike W. Barr, the writer on Mantra, wrote Batman and the Outsiders. Among the team's enemies were an opposing team of U.S. government-sponsored ultra-patriotic zealots. Um, their love of country, however, was exceeded only by their love of wordplay. What was the name of this uh, patriotic American team? Was it A, the Force of July? B, the Statutes of Liberty? C, the Flag Bearers? And that's the Animal Bears, B-E-A-R-S. Or D, the Defendocrats and Republicamandos? (laughs) Oof. I wish, I hope all of these are real. (laughs) I, I I came up with three of them, so oh. again, if you are out there and you want to, you want the rights to any of these fascinating publishing concepts, mm-hmm. indefensible link at gmail.com. All right. But which one did Mike W. Barr come up with? The Force of July, the statutes Statutes of Liberty, the Flag Bears, or the Defendocrats and Republican Mandos? I am going to go with the Force of July. That is correct. It was okay. the Fourth of July? So again, the rest available for all your licensing needs. What was B? Uh, B Statutes was of Liberty. Statutes of Liberty. Okay, that was my uh, second consideration. Okay, uh, I'm I'm going into the Ultraverse, Ooh. deep diving into uh, this exciting universe. Um, so these are both, I should say, sourced from marvelfandom.com and marvel.com, as many of my Ken and Fodder entries are. So if they're wrong, just blame them. I will. <laughs> okay. So number one, the Ultraverse hero, Nightman, originally gained his powers, which include the ability to sense evil thoughts from a mysterious burst of cosmic energy, but then went on to... Sorry, let me... Uh, preempt the corrections uh from i guess it was like a car accident but it was related to this other cosmic burst of energy so don't don't at me (laughs) Uh, so he received his abilities this way but then went on to receive additional mystical powers from a sorceress known as rhiannon unfortunately there was a catch 
What did Nightman have to do to stay alive and maintain his mystical powers? A. Mix a broth from different human organs and consume it. B. Play a saxophone solo from sundown to sunrise. (laughs) C. Get a magical tattoo of Rhiannon that would talk to him and often berate him. Or D. Promote Rhiannon's new dance pop album. (laughs) I do recall that the Nightman was a saxophonist. But... (laughs) I feel like playing a, sac- a solo for that long would be logistically trouble. I'm going to, if I am thinking like somebody who would write a series, I think the tattoo that talks to you would be a good supporting character. Was it the, was it the tattoo that talks to you? It was actually mix a broth. It was oh. A, mix a broth from different <laughs> human organs and consume it. Wow. Because there was a section under the Nightman wiki entry. <laughs> Entitled Cannibalism. <laughs> I, I see how that caught your eye. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't have anything quite so so juicy for the for the your next question, but okay. Um, so the the Marvel multiverse is protected by the Captain Britain Corps. Each universe in the multiverse has its own version of Captain Britain, although in some universes there are Slight variations such as Captain UK, Captain England, or Captain Commonwealth. Which of the following is not a version of Captain Britain from the Captain Britain Corps? Mm. Um, So all these but one are real. Uh, A. Hauptmann England of Earth 597, a a world where the Nazis won won World War II. B. Captain Anarchy, a punk rock super soldier who hates all authority from Earth-176. Spider-UK, a British version of Spider-Man, from Earth-833. Or Captain Airstrip-1 of Earth-744, the world of George Orwell's 1984. So Nazi Captain Britain, Mm. Punk Captain Britain, Spider-Man Captain Britain, or Double Plus Good Captain Britain. I'm going to go with... I'm rejecting my first instinct, and I'm going to go with B, the punk Captain Britain. That's correct. That was that was my own, again, highly marketable invention. <laughs> I'm sorry that my podcast, yeah. this, this podcast, has become my my pitching ground. But mm-hmm. how but, did yeah. how did Grant Morrison not not do that? Or... Probably be, well because the whole Captain Britain Corps was a. Uh, Alan Moore concept, and so I'm sure he was oh. eternally wrestling with whether whether to engage with his uh, hero slash arch nemesis. Okay. <clears throat> Back to the Ultraverse. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I know this is this is kind of uncharted territory for both of us, but... I'm going to be um, brave. The Ultraverse villain, Lord Pumpkin, originally ruled an alternate fantasy dimension, but then grew interested in potentially ruling the Earth. When he first arrived on Earth, he became a crime lord, selling a leafy green drug known as Zook and starting his own company. This company went by which gourd-based name? (laughs) Was it A. Butternut Industries? 
B. Jack-O-Lantern Enterprises, C. Squash Incorporated, or D. Honeydew Entertainment. <laughs> um, uh, I can go over them again. If, yes, please. If please. <laughs> A. Butternut Industries, <laughs> B. Jack-O-Lantern Enterprises, C. Squash Incorporated, or D. Honeydew Entertainment. My gut says squash. Your gut is correct. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do um, like Butternut I, Industries. That should be that should be our our corporate uh, umbrella for this podcast. Okay. I, I will start assigning the copyrights to Butternut Industries. <laughs> yeah, and also uh, for all you melon heads out there. <laughs> Don't at me because honeydew apparently is a gourd, which I didn't know melons were gourds. Um, but yeah, you learn. I learn something every week. Who says this is just a podcast about forgotten superhero universes from the from the early to mid nineties? That's, that's right. I I learned I learned some culinary knowledge. We are all richer for. Yeah. So, turning to recommendations, if mantra isn't your isn't your bag, to quote Kismet Deadly, uh, I've got a got a pick for you. Yeah, um, so I've got uh, Marvel sixteen oh two by Neil Gaiman, Andy Kubert, and Richard Eisenhove. Uh Speaking of alternate Marvel realities set in England, um, this was a fairly big series so if you're a regular comics reader and have been for a while it might be pretty obvious but this was an eight issue limited series published as a trade paperback in 20 uh 2004 and it's basically what if marvel characters existed in elizabeth elizabethan england um so i'm not going to go into too much detail about the characters because part of the fun is seeing what neil gaiman has done with the with them in terms of the roles that they play but for example you've got nick fury being a spy for queen elizabeth uh the x-men are called witch breed and are kind of being hunted as abominations um artwork is excellent both the the covers and the panels try to replicate like a 17th century print feel in terms of the shading and texture which uh, is interesting looking um i wasn't too into this the first time i read it the plot isn't that memorable but there's kind of sufficient intrigue and mystery and again it's just fun seeing what how the characters fit into that world um i also read a little bit of the spider-man 1602 spinoff which i remember being pretty fun too and i hope to revisit at some point so check out marvel 1602 and i have a recommendation that um People listening to a comic book podcast have probably seen already, but maybe want to dip into again. Um, my son wanted to rewatch the first Avengers, which is the first Joss Whedon movie called The Avengers, not Captain America, the first Avengers. Um, so I saw this for the first time in you know years, certainly since seeing um, Infinity War and Endgame, and started curious as to how it would hold up. And I think it does fairly well. Um, I do see where people complain that it's, shot a bit like a TV show. I don't have a great ex- expertise on stuff like cinematography and 
camera stuff, but like the helicarrier mm-hmm. bridge in particular has looked like this is the main set on our show, like Sunnyvale or Sunnydale High Library. Yeah. But um, story-wise, I was I was pretty impressed how we didn't find something for everybody to do because the obvious joke is like, well, what are you know Black Widow and Hawkeye going to do among you know Thor and Iron Man and stuff? But everybody has their mm-hmm. sort of moment in the sun. Um, Hawkeye is sort of treated as a joke in these movies sometimes, but they have a sort of clever idea of making him a pawn of the bad guys, which makes uh, sort of ups Black Widow stakes and sort of sells him as like actually he is a legitimate threat because if he's against you it's a big problem and mm-hmm. the scene of loki catching the arrow and smirking before it explodes is, is pretty great i posted the the uh, gif to twitter because i enjoyed it while watching it um one thing i think is really interesting is how shield fits in and um the whole phase one of like the marvel cinematic universe was sort of built on the idea of nick fury and shield and it was uh, I think directly influenced by the way that they had been imagined in the Ultimates comics with the obvious Samuel L. Jackson being Nick Fury thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was still pretty recent. And the idea that the Avengers would be, make more sense maybe in a movie as sort of a superpowered military unit. And that's where the movie starts out, where the Avengers are basically Fury's team working out of the helicarrier and they take orders like like soldiers. But Whedon has them basically reject S.H.I.E.L.D. and go out on their own. And I wonder if that had been the plan all along, or if someone with Whedon who, like, I think has a sort of an anti-authoritarian streak to his writing and themes and stuff. Yeah. If if it hadn't been him, if they would have just stayed as, like, the government super team, if that would have yeah. been, like, more palatable to... Or they thought it would have been more palatable to, to viewers, because... I think the whole it was just it was just funny like how much of the phase one is like everything is connected to Shield and then the Avengers is like right. actually Shield sucks let's not be part of Shield mm-hmm. and that seemed like a you know having watched Buffy and a couple of the uh, the other shows that seemed to be like of a piece of his sort of worldview so it's interesting yeah. interesting material to revisit in this post Endgame we're all gonna get into Eternals and. Doctor Strange 2 territory. But yeah, I still still a good movie. I'm sure you have it on your DVDs and Blu-rays and Disney Pluses. Cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, so we will s- sign off for the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we can be reached at indefensibleinc at gmail.com at, indef- at indefensibleinc on uh, Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, we're available from the usual suspects of podcasting catcher apps, including uh, Stitcher, just recently. <laughs> so if that is your podcast thingy of choice, you can check us out there. Please subscribe, like, um, any kind of feedback that you want to give us. We enjoy that. But otherwise, uh, for Indefensible Inc., I have been Justin Zyda. And I've been Ryan McClure. And have yourself a good night. Uh-huh.